right. Welcome, everybody, to our experience. I am Chad Wurz, Chief Executive at ASCP, uh, alongside my radio partner here, Tom Hansel. This week, we're going to be talking about some of the titans of industry, as I like to call it. It reminds me of the History Channel shows that they put out, the, the people that built America. So we're very pleased to have with us <laughs> TJ Griffin, who has, you know, not only endeared himself to healthcare in general during the pandemic, but certainly to ASCP, having served in a number of roles and really supported us as we kind of worked our way through the pandemic. Quick story about TJ is I met him in the, which I just learned, the 2017 ASCP in Orlando, our meeting this year is also in Orlando, but there's a bar there called Wreckers. And I think I sat down next to him and he was decked out in his full Iowa Hawkeye regalia watching football. <laughs> and that was the first time I met TJ. So TJ, welcome to the podcast. Hey, that game, Chad and Tom, that was the Iowa-Ohio State game where we cost them a chance to go to the championship. Iowa won 55-24. Their quarterback threw a pick six on the very first play of the game. It was on from there. And I can tell you to all my Hawkeye friends back at home, until this last beatdown that Ohio State just did to us, we lived for years with that score because you don't play everybody in the Big Ten. That 5524 was probably the pin number for thousands of <laughs> Iowans, either their garage door or on their ATM card. So I will not forget that day anytime soon either. So happy to be with you all. It was a great memory is seared in me. I know right where I was sitting in that bar when that happened because we never beat Ohio State. Well, if you're one of the fans of this podcast, uh, I also will point out, and TJ let us know this too, that Pat Keefe is an Iowa Hawkeye. So this yeah. is in the very early first season of this podcast, the second Iowa Hawkeye pharmacist to uh, join the podcast. So we're excited about that. And then one last little tidbit. I really like quoting movies. I'm of that, I guess, generation at this point. But one of my favorite movies is A Few Good Men, and it's got this great quote in it. That I'm going to play, and I used it on the description of this podcast, but. I love that quote. It does. It has nothing to do with TJ, other than the fact that he's from Iowa, uh, which that? I also found out. <laughs> I, he, I didn't hear it. He oh, hear it. let he me read it. Uh, this Iowa farm boy thing will play out for a while, but in the end, it sounds like he's searching for the truth. <laughs> Great line from Few Good Men. You have to give me my favorite movie quote, which is, Dad, do you want to have a catch? Field of Dreams. Oh, I love so, that. That was filmed in Iowa while I was going to college, and I was in the fifth car at the end of the movie that pulled into the... Well, that's you right. Know, if you watch, you if build you... it, they will come. You won't see my face, but you, <laughs> I was in the back seat of the fifth car. You can point to the car yeah. in the line. That's you the can. story sticking to. That's awesome. Well, TJ, let, let's just start. Let's hear your pharmacy origin story. How did you, how'd you become a pharmacist? How'd this all get started? <laughs> So like most folks, you know, it's a family full of pharmacists, right? No, I don't have any of that. I went to high school in Illinois, the little school called Orion, Illinois. And believe it or not, I dated the local pharmacist's daughter in high school. And Mr. Coleman was, a, what's that? I said, you did it for a girl. I did it for a girl. Well, I, what I got to do is got to know her dad <laughs> and I got to see how valuable a pharmacist was to a small town in rural America. I mean, that's something we can probably talk about the pharmacy deserts that exist, but this was a little town of 2000 and he never ran for office, but I always considered the Bill Coleman to be the, the mayor of Orion, Illinois. So 
yeah, just, uh, you know, met a girl, saw how valuable he was, always wanted to be in the sciences, figured maybe I'd be a doctor and I uh, just really enjoyed pharmacy and the interactions uh, that, that folks have. And he graduated from the University of Iowa, too. So I think that's how I got that on on top of mind. That's awesome. I, I think a lot of things that we've talked about on the podcast and continue to talk about is the relationship and the way relationship shapes your career choices and the way it shapes professions, the way it shapes pharmacy and healthcare. And it sounds like that, you know, obviously there was a relationship there. And that relationship led to your understanding of relationship to patients and to healthcare, and that kicked you down your path. It really did. And he was so important to the community, and there's so many pharmacists that are that important to their communities, too. And I wanted to be part of that because everybody loved him. Yeah. And it's not about being loved, but you, do, you enjoy that feeling, right? That relationship feeling, that hug, yeah. that a commu- the hug that a community can give you, and that's enriching. Yeah. I mean, I just talked to staff about this. We're doing that grant with USA Boxing and we had an educational event in Lubbock this past weekend. And that was the, you know, I didn't really feel like going to Lubbock. West Texas is is far away. I actually did the trip within a trip because we had our regional meeting in Dallas. But when I got there and got on site and you engaged with the community of boxing that was there for the U.S. Amateur Championships, that's exactly the feeling that I had was it's so fun to be in a community that cares about each other, that is interested in, you know, their sport, the activity that they're having and is open to listening to people talk about things like vaccines and the importance of getting your flu or your COVID vaccine. And that just, it takes you right back to those early days. I, like you, also had an experience growing up in a community pharmacy and felt that relationship with the community. And, and you know, you seek those things. Those things are important. They drive you. Oh, very much so. And I, I've been to Lubbock many times. That is a, it's a nice city. We have a pharmacy there, so I do get out there occasionally. And Underrated city in Texas. Mm -hmm. People don't talk about Lubbock too much, but uh, a lot going on there. So, DJ, tell me, you you went to pharmacy school in in Iowa. What was your first experience, though, as a pharmacist or in a pharmacy that you can can recollect that really kind of hit home for you to say, man, I've, I've picked the right industry. I've picked the right career path. Is there anything that you can recall from memory? There's a couple of funny stories that I have that I recall from my early career. So I graduated University of Iowa in 1989, and I moved to Florida three weeks later. I just wasn't a fan of Midwest winters, and I worked for a company called Ecker Drug Stores. And my first store as a pharmacist, as like I got my license and I got my first store, and I was with another newbie. And we went in and we were going to do a C2 count, right, in the pharmacy. We opened the drawer of the C2. It was just a a locked drawer back then. And inside of there was a jar of cocaine, of crystallized cocaine, because the pharmacist that was there before was making eye drops for an optometrist in the town, you know, really sterile in the back of a drugstore, right? making eye drops out of cocaine for a local ophthalmologist. And so we called the DEA and said, we'd kind of like you to come get this. And they promptly came and took it away. Wow. So that was a, so my, was it really eye drops the first, or was it eye drops? <laughs> it was eye drops as far as I knew. Right, that's, right. The, that's the story and the ophthalmologist is sticking to it. Wow. <laughs> but 
I said, it's probably not a good idea to make those in an unsterile environment. Right. You know, especially since you're doing it for eye surgery. Sounds like something 1889, not 1989. You should see in that bottle. It was brown and crusty. I have no idea how old. That's old it amazing. was, but I made it go away. The, my partner, she was freaked out, but <laughs> I said, it's all good. We'll just, we'll just call the DEA. They'll come get it. They did. They sent like seven people to come get it. Yeah, right. Several years ago, you and I were driving around Orlando and you were taking to all these backwoods areas and, and just different, you know, secret areas to, to eat and, and what have you. And you were telling me all about your, your initial first five years, seven years as, as a pharmacist. And yep. I know that you kind of moved up the ranks and became more of a, a regional manager. What drove you towards management and leadership versus being behind the bench there? I wanted to make sure my peers had someone they could count on, you know, as, as a leader and always have their back. You know, you are only as good a leader as, as the people are around you. And I really had a really good team in Orlando of folks that I considered my peers. And I just jumped at the chance to try to learn more, to grow as a person, grow as a leader, grow as a manager. And very rarely at Eckerd's did they promote you to be a district manager of your own peer group. They would like to separate you from that. But I really asked for that. I I thought it might be tough, but it didn't really turn out to be that way. And uh, they were happy to have a leader they, they knew and could trust. And I learned so much from that group. Uh, they were a group of really experienced uh, pharmacists, men and women who'd been around the block a long time. Many of them are gone now. I miss them. But yeah, it's just, a, you know, grow as a person. I've always wanted to, leadership has kind of been in my family and in my blood and I just wanted to figure out how could we help more people do things the right way for the patients and customers that we serve. So I loved that opportunity, changed many districts over the years. Uh, Eckerd did like to, to move you around and change you around a little bit, but that first group was really special right there in North Orlando, kind of the northern suburbs. A lot of those back roads I took you on are now like totally populated. Orlando has just exploded. Well, we, we had lunch at a great place. You wouldn't, wouldn't normally found it. I can't remember the name of it, but I do remember. Oh, the Dixie, Dixie Cream Cafe. For sure, that's where I took you. Okay. All right. It was good. A, a breakfast lunch. Like yeah. I had, they, oh, my heavens. They do a 12-hour brisket hash there. So everyone here, you know, we'll, during the ASCAP convention this year, we'll, we'll, we'll take a trip over there. We'll there take Chad. Go. To the Dixie Cream. That's a, I remember we were we we really were having a hard time finding a seat. I mean, it was packed. It was packed. Well, let me pivot from that a little bit. Multa bueno. <laughs> talking about um, leadership, I know that you've had some experience with leadership from a political perspective, and not not being you know political in nature, but you've spent some time working on campaigns. You're very active as it relates to issues that affect pharmacy. You were just here for a fly-in day for American Healthcare Association. You know, talk about that aspect of your career because it, it didn't just start. It's it's been part of your your whole career. Yeah, I was very active in politics in college, really before college and high school. My parents were very active. My mom was on the county board for 25 years, so I've been in and around campaigns growing up. 
I was the University of Iowa campaign chairman for Paul Simon, the senator from Illinois who ran for president in, in 1988. And uh, we had more kids vote for Paul Simon in that caucus than the total number of kids who voted in the 1984 caucuses. So I'm, I'm always proud of that fact. And so I've been very active, like I said, in, in college. And, you know, just like I was talking about helping change the lives of the customers we served at Eckerd's by trying to lead that group, on a broader scale, change comes through through activism and making sure that uh, our elected leaders are, are doing what we want them to do and are doing the right thing. And that usually just comes through education. People will do the right thing. I, I believe that in my heart if they understand the issue and, and can have it be explained to them. And you have to be politically involved, or if you don't do it, somebody else who might have a different view may be able to change and shape the future the way they like it. And so it's important to be active no matter what your party or your beliefs. I just feel that uh, the folks we elect need to understand our industry, need to understand pharmacy, that we sometimes can be the forgotten part of healthcare, mm-hmm. and we're the most accessible part of healthcare, and people seek us out. I think we saw that in the pandemic. And to make sure we're relevant, you have to have a voice. And so you have to donate, you have to show up and make yourself heard. And so, you know, I've been doing that a long time, a long time. My mom used to slog through hog fields because she would get assigned the hog confinement, you know, committee like that. Only in the Midwest do you have part of your county board being a hog confinement subcommittee. So that's how far back I go. (laughs) Unbelievable. And what I think with the take home, like, you know, we do this podcast for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is to engage the younger pharmacy generation. And it's not to say, well, this is what TJ did. And if you want to be like TJ, do exactly what he did. It's about understanding TJ, the person. And the kinds of things you get involved with are not things that you said, well, now that I'm you know, chief pharmacy officer of Pharmerica, I'm going to get involved. No, you did it from the beginning. And it was part of your process. It's always going to be part of your process. You know, I can think back, you're the, you're the 2021 Richard Berman award winner. And I think back to the, you know, the discussions around that award and really reflecting on the fact that you, you stepped up not as TJ, the chief pharmacy officer of Pharmerica, but TJ, the pharmacist. And this is what I do because it's professionally the right thing to do. You weren't worried about protecting any Pharmerica secrets or not being an open and sharing to your, all of your colleagues across the country. And I think that says a lot. When we all succeed, we succeed. Right. You know, when we're all doing, when the profession is doing well, I know my company and my employers are going to do really well and they've always encouraged it. It's just important. And, you know, I want everybody to have a good professional career. You know, my lobbying started back in pharmacy school that I would, the building that I went to was a very old and tired building. I just be honest. I think it was open to the year I was born. <laughs> and then that's the, that's the pharmacy school I graduated from. So we started lobbying and we had a group of, uh, uh, Republican pharmacists and Democrat pharmacists. And we both lobbied from a bipartisan perspective to get that new building built. And, you know, we did. I brought several of the Democratic candidates for governor of Iowa back then through the old tire building and, and made sure the dean and everyone were able to show them what needed to be done. And it, it got done. Yeah. Uh, it would happened uh, a couple of years after I left school. But I, I take great pride when I went back 
the the dean said they should probably put my name on the bottom of the plaque because I was pretty effective in that. And I'm not trying to be braggadocious about that, but it really needed to be done. And pharmacy schools aren't like on the top of the list of buildings on campuses. So Iowa is a very unique university in that we have an FDA a manufacturing plant that's underneath the pharmacy school. And that oh. generates money for the school and the university. With oh. our newest building, we're on the third building since since that initial one, which just opened last year. They have a two-story FDA manufacturing plant with sterile product lines. And it's the only one in the United States. It's at a college of pharmacy, I should say. It's, it's magnificent and is going to be generating quite a bit of revenue for the university in the state of Iowa. And when you have that kind of product to show the politicians, they're, they're all in. So mm-hmm. it was important that they had to see it. Yeah, I'm glad you told that story. I was going to ask you to talk about the university at Iowa. But even beyond that, you think about how that can influence some of the things that we're seeking in Congress. You know, Senator Grassley is a big proponent of pharmacy, carries the rural and underserved provider status bill. And being able to point to people, you know, you mentioned, you know, Pat Keefe being on the show, you're on the show, Mm -hmm. the presence and the influence of the University of Iowa. Those are important things. Those could be the tipping points between getting something moving and not having it move. So I think it's it's important to to tie all those things together. So uh, I paired uh, in the last year and a half, maybe two, it's been during COVID. And after the end of COVID, Esme Graywall, who is our our vice president of government government affairs here at at Bright Spring for America, she and I were the first folks that Grassley's team saw live after COVID, Hmm. just to talk about pharmacy, just to talk about psychotropic stewardship. And, you know, our good friend, Charlie Hardick, once you bring, he's from Iowa. So, you know, I brought him into the conversation to make sure they understood this wasn't just some VP from Louisville, Kentucky, that we had friends and roots and everything I'm telling you, you go back and verify with Charlie and that, you know, he'll tell you how important this is. So mm. it, it worked very well. They go, well, we know Charlie, we know the Hardicks. Mm-hmm. So it's, you have to have those kind of relationships and use those kind of relationships, you know, to the advantage of the profession. And that's that's how you get conversations started. Yeah. Well, speaking of politics and in COVID, I know you were integral in Operation Warp Speed and being able to be a leader in, in helping, I guess, bridge that gap between long-term care pharmacy and pharmacist and the federal government when it came to trying to immunize all of of the American population. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because it went from zero to a thousand in about 15 minutes. And I know that you were all in kind of up, up to your eyeballs. The very first meeting that I was on in, uh, I want to say late June or early July of 2020, you know, in the midst of all of this, you know, everyone knew there was a vaccine, you know, they had done a good job of, of getting everybody focused on getting that. So, Naturally, they needed to put together a group to how are we going to administer this? How are we going to bill it? How are we going to ship it and get it out to people? And so they put together a team. I think uh, Chad must have put my name into the hopper somehow, and I got (laughs) picked. And the very first call I was on, you had you had CEOs or COOs of you know, UPS and Amazon and Walmart and Walgreens and CVS and the leaders of all these different uh, organizations. And here I was, 
you know, the humble pharmacist from Iowa, you know, kind of uh, on this as well. And each one of those other people had their chief legal officer on the call with them. We had to go around the table and introduce ourselves and why we're here and who we're representing. And they asked if I had my chief legal counsel with me. And I said, no, I have the backing of 1700 long-term care pharmacies with me. So we were just, you know, it was just a conversation. It was important to make sure our perspective was there. Uh, in the end, they didn't choose to make contracts with 1,700 long-term care pharmacies, which I can see that from a contractual point of view. Uh, I think we probably could have gotten the vaccine, not probably, we definitely would have gotten the vaccine out faster if we could have engaged the entire army. But, you know, that's the genesis of the Long-Term Care Pharmacy Definition Act, for instance. They need to know who we are and that we exist in order to get those those kind of contracts in the future. But the COVID's really solidified that. But yeah, that went from zero to 100. I have a close working relationship uh, with Walgreens and you know we kind of advised them on the process going forward on how they should work with our customers and clients and those you know in the nursing home industry. So I did a lot of help with them and advising them along the way, their chief pharmacy officer, Rick Gates, another University of Iowa grad. So oh, is he really? That's funny. He really is. That's funny. So as is, did you saw today, Randy McDonough elected yes. uh, the incoming APHA president in 2025, fraternity brother of mine. <laughs> it's all Iowa. So, it's all, it's they're taking all Hawks. They're all taking Go Hawks. That's right. Yeah. But Warp Speed, I, I think I'm the, that's the most proudest I've been in my career. I have sure. to say, There's, I've done a lot of things, but you know, all of us standing together as one, working together. I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I thought Walgreens and CVS did a great job and coordination. And, you know, the things could have been smoother in some places, but hey, you know, it was a pandemic. We didn't know yeah. what we didn't know. Well, and I, you know, don't downplay the fact that if without, you know, your influence, I don't think they would have involved any long-term care pharmacies in that initial rollout. And they, they involved seven. I think you or one of your pharmacies was part of that. Yeah. early seven. And it kind of created the opportunity to think about long-term care differently and work through the GPOs as a, as a way to allow the government to make fewer contracts, but be able to engage the broader long-term care pharmacy market. And eventually, obviously, when they released it to all the GSOs and GPOs, long-term care pharmacy was part of it. I think those conversations allowed us to be part of Operation Speed, right? We yeah. got we got first access to the monoclonal yep. antibodies. Yep. We involved ASCAP and others in those calls with the CDC. I was also sitting on calls with the CDC, you know, with Walgreens. And so, you know, it was a good opportunity to make those relationships. And I have to tell you, that's, you know, one of the first calls I got with Operation Speed, our pharmacy in San Antonio. I mean, I don't know if the listeners know that Chad literally was filling out a Google document to order a Google doc to order monoclonal antibodies for pharmacies across the country, because that was the only way we could do it. A Google doc. I mean, I remember sitting and, in this office with Arnie Clayman. And it was just the two of us. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> thank God we came from an operations background because we're actually taking orders and handing them to the federal government. And, you know, but you, like you said, you do what you have to do. It's an emergency. And any way to make sure that the people that you know that can take care of the patients best get access and get engaged. Uh, and that was our, our people. One of my favorite quotes I, uh, is from Winston Churchill, sometimes doing your best isn't good enough. 
you have to do what is required. And we did what was required yep. of us uh, during that period of time. And I can't can't be more proud of uh, everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, it was a part of American history now, what happened with that pandemic and, and the response that, that we had as pharmacists with, with you and Chad's leadership. If you're talking to a pharmacy now, I know several farmers that I've talked to kind of PTSD from, you know, all of a sudden having to administer millions of, of vaccinations and something they were not right. really comfortable doing and, and they're forced in, in, into doing. But now here we are post pandemic. What would you advise or, or want to see pharmacies do when it comes to being a provider, stepping out of that realm of dispensing and, and taking more of a leadership role in, in provider status? Well, I think we've proven through the pandemic that provider status is almost a given, right? You see now, you know, states are recognizing it. Yeah. I mean, it's not a it's not a very good positive CBO score. So I think it'll be a while yet before the federal government kind of gets there. Grassley's there for us, though. He's there. Mm-hmm. He's been we've proven to him that pharmacists should have provider status. And that goes again to these pharmacy deserts that we talked about and physician deserts. So sometimes the pharmacist is the only healthcare person within 40 miles. Uh, so why shouldn't that pharmacist be able to do uh, a strep throat swab or a flu vaccine swab or other pieces of things where, where the, the therapy is so easy for us to prescribe? And so there's no reason we couldn't have provider status. So I think the pandemic has gotten us a lot closer to that. And you have to fight for it, though. If you're a young pharmacist and you want provider status, you have to show up. You have to go to the mm-hmm. town halls. You have to talk to the congressman. You have to talk to your state representative. You might get more done through your state. So work local. Run for office yourself. Become, you know, we'd have the, there is very few pharmacists in politics. Mm-hmm. There's two in Congress and that's it. Most people don't know that Hubert Humphrey was a pharmacist. So we had a vice president that was a pharmacist. You know, why can't we have a president that's a pharmacist? So one of you listeners out there is going to be that. I think Chad's just yeah, putting right. his name in the hat for yeah, 2024. Right. No, no, no. Let, let me pivot back. Take us from, you know, you pick it up wherever you want from your Eckerd days into your yep. Farmerica days. And then talk a little bit about Farmerica because, I, you know, obviously there's always a dominant pharmacy out there in any industry. Farmerica has now kind of emerged, moved, I think, past Omnicare as sort of the big long-term care pharmacy out there. And, and I think in a lot of ways, people appreciate it because of the influence that you have at Farmerica and what you bring to pharmacy from a just pharmacist first perspective, if you want to call it that. But kind of talk us through that. Sure. So Eckerd's was bought by JCPenney and things didn't go well under that corporate leadership. And they ended up being sold to CVS in the early 2000s. I left a year before that merger. It just was, uh, you know, just a, a messy time in the in management and decided I needed a change. And I went to work for a grocery store chain uh, called Cash and Carry Grocery Stores. They were just setting up all their pharmacies. They needed somebody with good operational experience and went to work for them. And nine months into my tenure there, which I loved every minute of creating something kind of a corporate structure from the ground up, my mother-in-law, I was living in Tampa at the time, and my mother-in-law was 53, was diagnosed with terminal small cell lung cancer. 
And I don't know if it was divine intervention, but certainly somebody up there was looking out for my family. And I got a phone call really within a week of that diagnosis, seeing if uh, I'd be interested in interviewing for a job with this long-term care pharmacy called Pharmerica. Their large operation in Orlando needed a new director. And that pharmacy happened to be in Longwood, Florida, which is the same town where my mother-in-law lives. So it just seemed like fate. To be honest with you, I was all in on retail, did not know long-term care pharmacy. I came, I interviewed for it, and they offered me the position, and I was able to move my family uh, to be, you know, near, near, you know, my wife to be near her mom very quickly and saved a lot of miles in the car. But then, you know, 20 years later, here I am the chief pharmacy officer. But that pharmacy in Orlando and Longwood, Florida, we had 80 nursing homes. And uh, it was a very 24-hour, 120-person pharmacy, very busy, one of the top IV pharmacies in Pharmerica at the time. And I'd forgotten more about IVs than I remembered at that point. Just got into the flow of long-term care pharmacy. I'm like, gosh, I wish I had known about this in, in college because this is great. This is pharmacy at its best. You know, and just have loved uh, every minute of it. You know, my mother-in-law passed. She was diagnosed in February. We moved. I took the job at the end of March in 2003. So I've now been 20 years at Farmerica. And she passed away uh, the, the uh, Saturday before Thanksgiving. So we got some quality time with her. Actually moved in with them until our house was uh, finished in Orlando. So I, I got a lot of time with her and saw the importance of palliative care and how pharmacists and, and the hospice industry work so closely together. And was we were able to be by her bedside at the end. And just because I was a pharmacist in Florida, I was able to destroy the destroy all the extra narcs at the end of that day with the hospice nurse. So it was quite an experience. And Along the way at, at Farmerica, I was the regional pharmacy director for North Florida and Georgia. That happened in 2008, so about five years after I became a regional. 2010, became vice president of operations and ran the south, so North Carolina to Texas. That region is still all basically intact today, and 2014, uh, became the chief pharmacy officer. So. And my role as chief pharmacy officer, I have operations. I have also our clinical uh, consulting team. We've built a nice corporate clinical consulting team. It's very flattering to hear what you say about our reputation. I think we, I consider ourselves the thought leader in the industry. I think we're putting out lots of, of uh, material that I think is helpful, again, to the whole industry. When, when we have webinars, like we just did on uh, psychotropic stewardship, you know, we've had 2,000, 2,200 people that signed up for it. And we'll, we'll have 11, 1,200 people who attend. And it warms my heart to have 70% of them be non-clients. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to win business through thought leadership. And I think that just, that just really helps. And, you know, our whole portfolio has grown over the years. We have 184 pharmacies now, and we have pharmacies and uh, we have specialty pharmacy division called Onco 360. We have 30-plus uh, uh, home infusion pharmacies under Emerita. Uh, we have one-point patient care uh, hospice locations across the United States that are under our umbrella. And then our, we have 115, you know, long-term care pharmacies. And Big job to stay on top of uh, operations, but we have great leaders in the company, and 
my role is just to support them. What is it that you need to make sure that uh, you can take care of the patients and clients and residents uh, that you serve? And every day's a little bit more surprising than the next. So it's been a, just a really been a blast. And I've got uh, great people I've worked with over the years, great bosses who are supportive of becoming that thought leader, allowing me to take the time to, to work with ASCAP and the government relations stuff is really important uh, for the company is as we grow outside the box, you know, now it's long-term care at home, you know, 10,000 people a day are turning 65. I'm to understand, I think very shortly, 10,000 people a day are going to start turning 80. Yep. And uh, so the, the long-term care sector that we're in, you know, we're in our infancy, you know, the next 25 years is going to be the era of long-term care pharmacy with the aging of the baby boomers. And it's so important that we take that mantle, don't take it lightly, and just run with it and take our services that we've learned and honed over the years in skilled facilities and bring it home, literally bring it home. And so that's why the at-home stuff that we're doing is so important. I just am excited about the future. I'm energized every time I come to work. Yeah. yeah, bring it home. I, I see a hashtag in our future. Bring it home. <laughs> so exactly. that was that was going to be my next question. What do you project for pharmacies to think about to, to gear up towards over the next five to ten years? Sounds like long term care at home. I know your corporation Bright Spring really is is a great home care company, and and that's certainly their direction. But if you're a long term care pharmacy that doesn't have that 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 Bright Spring support, do you think that's the area they should concentrate on, or is there something else? Make partnerships with local home health agencies. Get them to refer their patients to your pharmacy. Make those relationships. Uh, Again, this is a relationship business. So, yeah, no, I think that is exactly where you should diversify. You can help so many people. And it isn't that hard to do. Making relationships can be hard if you're not know how to do that. I mean, we should have a session on that. Yeah. You know, at at ASCAP, I'd be happy to be part of that. They don't teach you that in pharmacy school. <laughs> uh, they still don't. You know, we uh, we actually sponsor a palliative care professorship at the University of Iowa because we we think hospice is so important and training pharmacists to do uh, palliative care. I think is is extremely important. All those sectors are now coming together with the aging of the baby mm-hmm. boom. So as a pharmacist, you have to understand palliative care. You have to understand chronic illness. You have to understand ad, uh, adherence. And the insurers are coming around now to understand that they need a holistic approach to a person's health. They're not business units. The business units and value-based care have to come together. So the the insurer side and the drug side and all the analysts that they have, they understand now and they grasp it that it's okay if Mrs. Jones takes, you know, gets all her refills because getting her refills and staying adherent to her medication means less visits to the doctor, less visits to the hospital. And all in all, if you put the entire healthcare ecosystem basket into, into one basket, they're saving money. And that's the story we just have to tell over and over and over and over again, both with our insurer partners and the legislators that we deal with, the congressmen that we deal with. You just have to continue to tell that story. And as more pharmacies grasp it and do it, we'll have better data. And you you have to lead with data, right? Mm-hmm. We have a small microcosm where we've been doing it in Ohio. We reduced hospital admissions 
in the ALF communities that we were doing this intensive work with by 70%. And so as you partner up with local physician practices and home health agencies, you can create that kind of dynamic practice for yourself and really, you know, do something for your community. I don't think that the chains are necessarily going to to go that route. They're going to try. You see what they're buying. So they're trying to make it happen. I think long-term care is the laboratory that's already doing it. Mm -hmm. And so we can really make a difference. Some of the tidbits that you brought up, even during this conversation, I I forgot that JCPenney bought Eckert, but it instantly reminded me of CVS buying Omnicare and thinking, oh, you know, this is just another business. We're great at business. We can do this and realize, you know, it's not that it's a special business and you have to be good at that special business and make sure that you're, you're taking care of that business, not just kind of coming in and, and assuming that you're, you're experts at everything. I'm sure JCPenney learned that about buying Eckert. CVS, I believe, has learned a little bit about buying Omnicare. You could say that again. Right? (laughs) JCPenney's first big decision at Eckert Drugstores, I kid you not, was they took out all of the legs pantyhose out of all the stores and put in the JCPenney, you know, kind of those higher end silk stockings and things. They took out all the legs and put in all those those more expensive stockings. Well, I'd worked in drugstores a long time, and I know that you stop at the drugstore when you ripped a hole in your pantyhose on your way to a funeral, a wedding, or a prom, or a party, or something, and you needed a quick, you know, heck, they changed in the bathroom. You know, they didn't want $20 right. pantyhose. Right. They, they had to reverse that entire decision in six months. Hmm. Unbelievable. That's a good story. So, pantyhose it, you know, now, pennies, pennies had run drugstores for a hundred years. Most people didn't realize that they, they ran thrift treasury drugs in the Northeast forever. Those were, that was under the JC Penny banner for decades. So most people didn't know that, but pennies had undergone the, that leadership change and, yep. you know, the Eckerd crew wanted, they were public and they were, it was, you know, that was a good time for me, you know, when that merger happened. So it, you know, worked out pretty good there. And you got 40% off at JCPenney as an employee. So Nice. Made it worth it. There you go. Well, while we tie this up, TJ, just a couple of things. You know, we started with a quote from a few good men. I just want to say thank you for being one of the few good men or women in pharmacy. You are one of our titans of industry. And this isn't a retrospect or a look back on your career because you are plowing forward. This is, this is just kind of an acknowledgement of where you've been and where you're going. So we appreciate you as a pharmacist and for, for sure our membership looks up to you and, and the path you've laid mm-hmm. for them. That's very humbling to say. I don't think of myself that as all. I just think of myself as just a, another humble Midwest pharmacist and happy to do what, what part I can play just uh, makes me happy. And so I appreciate all those kind words. Well, not not to put you on the spot, but uh, I know you do a couple of impressions of some presidents. I don't know if you can do that off the top of your head, but uh, that's part of your political background. <laughs> well, well, Chad, I just got to tell you, you know, there's a lot of pharmacy deserts in Arkansas. There just is. And, you know, as, as one of my people who succeeded me would say, it's good. It's tremendous. It's the best, the best thing that we do. Uh, maybe we should get less drugs from China. But, uh, you know, it's tremendous. 
That's awesome. And, and thanks for being on both sides of the aisle on that one. That's good. Well, <laughs> try to the pharmacy thing doesn't work happy. out for you, TJ. I think you, you have a that's right. career in, uh, in, in, in Hollywood, yeah, right? Uh, at the comedy club. I, I, for, I doubt that. <laughs> for, for me, TJ, you've been, you've been a, a great friend over of, of the past several years and, and, and a mentor of mine. I, I've always enjoyed just, just hanging out, just hanging out with you. And, and we tend to quickly not talk shop, but just talk personal. And so, yeah. um, but you certainly are an icon in this industry. And, and I think the title of this is Pillars of the Industry. And, and I rank you right up there as Chad does, as we all do with the pillar. So thank you for your leadership. And I know that you're going to continue doing that throughout, please, throughout please, the next decade. So please do not make any marble busts. My nose, it's just <laughs> not, it take too much time, but uh, that, that's very kind. So as we close out, I know that you're a huge Iowa fan, as we've established many times today. Any predictions on this coming football season coming up in a few months? Is, is Iowa going to uh, win the West? Are they going to take the Big Ten title? Anything like that you want to predict here live? They're going to win the West for sure. I mean, that you know, come on. That's, that's a <laughs> given right. with this team, with this defense. And now that we have a quarterback, I am uh, super excited for the season. I'm going to go 10 and 2. 10 and we'll 2. Are you playing nice. Ohio State? We do not play Ohio State this year. Okay, I've we been, do have Penn I've got State some score prediction. The Penn State away on Whiteout night. They already announced that, so that'll be a tough one. That's the first. That's our Big Ten opener, so that'll be a tough one. Do you have a score road. prediction for that game? Well, I'll say this: Iowa and Penn State games are always go down to the last play, don't they? It seems like every single time. So I won't predict the outcome, but I guarantee you it'll be worth it'll watching. Be worth it's, a watch. Yeah. It's on it's uh, gonna be I think CBS's first Big Ten night game. You know, they changed the Big Ten changed channels. So I think it's a seven thirty at night on a Saturday on CBS, I believe, or NBC. I don't know which one. It's a night game on national television. There you go. Well, we know you're gonna be doing that night. Right. Well you know the other big game this year is Iowa Northwestern play at Wrigley Field. Oh, wow. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that one. I'm like a bunch of college buddies is going, we're going to meet up for that one. That's fun. It'll be fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks for doing this. You guys, this is, this is fun. This Let's is this fun. Again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for being on. Thanks everybody for listening. You'll catch us uh, uh, next week with a new episode of our experience, but TJ, thank you, Tom. Great job. Uh, we'll see everybody next time. All right. Appreciate it. 